0: Amen, Thank you, well, please turn your Bibles to the book of Galatians Galatians chapter two. remember in galatians we 're continuing to talk about this this main theme of, of finding freedom in the true gospel, finding freedom in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first two chapters, as I've mentioned many times, and I'll mention a couple more times, uh, the first two chapters are all about the source of this true gospel. Where does this message of finding freedom in the true gospel of Jesus Christ come from? And Paul says this this message, the source is God himself. And he's developed that idea. He said, here's some some things that confirm that, Some some things that demonstrate that that is true. My conversion, he says, demonstrates that this gospel comes from God. My call to ministry shows that this gospel comes from God. And last week and this morning we're seeing that the confirmation of my ministry shows that its source is God as well. The way in which the apostles have confirmed my ministry shows that this this ministry finds its source in, in God, this gospel finds its source in God himself. And last week we looked at false brothers, verses one through five. And this week we're looking at true brothers, how true brothers respond to this this gospel and how it shows that it is the message that comes from God. And so we're going to look at verses six through ten this morning as we see the church confirming the ministry. Of the true gospel, and we're going to see that there are, are ways that a church can either advance or undermine the gospel in the way that it helps people think about ministry, the way that a church re- relates the people in a church relate to one another and encourage one another to ministry. The way in which they do that can either support the gospel, advance the gospel that they proclaim, or we can do that in a way that undermines the gospel. And so we're going to talk this morning about how the church confirms the ministry of the true gospel and, and some principles related to that. But let's, let's read verses 6 through 10, and if you're able to, uh, if you please stand with me and, verse, and read verses 6 through 10. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So again, he's talked about the false brothers, and now he's talking about the true brothers. Verse 6. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles." And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You may be seated. And Heavenly Father, again, we do ask that you would be glorified, through the the proclamation and the reception of your word today, that the way in which we we talk about you, the way in which we receive your teaching, would glorify you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, the way that a church talks about ministry, the way that a a church affirms one another as we, we think about ministry The way that we do that can either advance the gospel or it can undermine the gospel that we proclaim and profess. In other words, all of us have been called to do ministry. In fact, our entire lives are to be Gospel lives our entire lives are to be lives of of ministry of, of living out the gospel in our lives. Everything that we do is to be ministry. Everything we do is to be done in service to to God and his glory so so all of life is is ministry. but the way in which you and I engage one another in ministry, the way that we we talk about how we 're doing and about the different areas of the life that we 're engaged in. The way that we do that can either affirm the gospel or it can undermine the gospel. All of life is ministry. My, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my children, my friends at school, my, my relationships at work, the things I, I do at work, the, the things I do on a Sunday morning, the things I do on Wednesday nights, all aspects of my life are ultimately supposed to be done for God's glory and, and ultimately our Our ministry or at least are supposed to be. And and the way that you and I encourage one another in our lives and in the things that we're doing in service to God, the way that we do that either affirms or undermines the gospel. There's a book that I know many small groups in our our church have read called The the Trellis and the Vine. The Trellis and the Vine. And there's a, a section in that book where the authors talk about two different ways that you can approach ministry and how to encourage people to get engaged in ministry in the church. They said one way, and, and this is the way that's kind of been dominant over the last several hundred years of, of church life, at least in North America. One way is to say, okay, here, here are all the ministries that our church does. Here are all the programs that we do. Here's what we do on a Sunday morning in the worship service. Here's what we do on a Wednesday night. Here's what we do on a, a prayer ministry that we have. And here's the program that we have for our children during this hour and our children during that hour and our children on Wednesday nights. And here's kind of what we do for this ministry and that ministry and our, our quilting ministry and our sweeping, ministry, whatever minute. We have all these programs. And, and then, so this is one approach in how to engage people in ministry. So we have, we have all these, these programs, and now here are all the people that we have in the church, and here are the programs in the church, the people in the church. We need to figure out a way how to get these people to do these things. I've got these slots. Here's a person I need to figure out. What slot do I put them in? Or I've got a slot. I've got to figure out which, which person do I grab. Uh, encourage. That's one approach. Another approach is to say this, okay, um, here are the people that God has has brought together in this relationship. That's the church, this this family. And how is God working in their lives, and how has God equipped these people with his gifts of grace in their life? And, And now, how do we How do we help them do the things that God has called them to do in the context of the church? And there there are things that God has called a church to do. There are are ministries that God would have us do that are essential ministries. Now, how do we take these people that God has entrusted to us and and do ministry in the church? That's, I would argue, a more biblical way to think about ministry. But it's it's hard. It's hard sometimes. The authors of the the Trellis and the Vine talk about how one church they encountered had uh, Twenty-three different ministry organizations within the church, and at one time they said, "Sure, maybe some of these these things, these structures, have been good." But then time went on. God put different people in the church, but they they kept these structures, and they they had a, a statement that I think is very good. They said, it, "It takes a lot of courage to shoot a dead horse." Right? <laughs> it takes a lot. Of, you'll get it later. Um, but it's true. Yeah. It's true. It takes a lot of courage to to do away with something that's that a lot of people have have found valuable. So how do I view, if, if all my life is ministry and the church is supposed to be involved in my life and helping me think about ministry, how does that relationship look? Some people have stepped back from the church in a significant way. They've said, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm just going to kind of do my life over here. and I'm going to go to church on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to kind of do my life over here and, and this is the ministry that I'm going to have and the things I'm going to do. But their ministry in their life is very detached from from the life of the church. They become spiritual orphans, if you would. And conversely, sometimes the church has become an overbearing parent. and said, okay, this, this is how you're going to live this area of your life, and this is how you're going to do this ministry, and this is what you're going to, in other words, they've become this, this overbearing parent. Both those situations are unhealthy. How do we think about the church's involvement in our life and our life involvement in one another as we seek to do ministry? Here's kind of the central idea that I want us to walk through together this morning. The responsibility of the church. The responsibility of the church. And by the church, I don't just mean a couple elders or something. The responsibility of the church, the responsibility of, of us as a, a fellowship of believers is not to dictate to one another what our ministries are, but our responsibility of our church is to discern God's gifts of ministry to Christ's church. The responsibility of the church is not to dictate But to discern God's gifts of ministry to Christ's church. So we've been brought into this relationship together, and now by God's grace, we need to discern what gifts has God given our church and how can we use them for His glory. And that's the beautiful thing that I think takes place in this passage. Let's look at some principles that help us understand how to view the role of the church, the the role of the church and one another in our life and in our ministries. Here's the first principle, number one. And this is kind of a foundational principle. We'll spend a little bit more time on it. But number one, the church's authority has limits and can be abused. The church's authority, the, the church's authority to speak into one another's life, has limits and it can very easily be abused. Here's what Paul Says as he begins. I'm going to look at each kind of. By the way, this this whole section Paul uses some very uh, some some complicated structure. He doesn't finish clauses. He leaves things dangling all over the place, and so there's some some difficulties here. But but let's let's kind of walk through section at a time and see if we can kind of draw these principles. Here's how he begins. He says, and so he's talked about the false brothers. and He says, and from those from those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. What is Paul saying? A couple things here that I think we need to glean just from this beginning of verse 6. First, we see that there are influential leaders in the church. That's, That's a given. Paul recognizes that. Paul's walking really a fine line here. Remember, he wants to confirm that his gospel is true, and the, the fact that the apostles confirmed his gospel message and didn't add anything to it, that's, in his mind, that's, that's confirmation that these apostles were, or rather, it's, it's validation of his message that the apostles confirmed it. That, that's an important thing. And yet, at the same time, what's his point? His point is that the source of the gospel is not the apostles, it's God. And so he wants to. He wants both of those things to come through here. That look, the apostles confirmed it. That that shows something significant about the validity of my, what I'm saying. And yet at the same time, this isn't the apostles' message. It doesn't come from them. It comes from God. So he acknowledges that there are influential people in the church. Now, who are they? Later in the passage, it's going to mention James. And remember, James is one of the the central leaders of the church at Jerusalem. He mentions. Cephas, and who's Cephas? That's, that's Peter. Remember, Jesus calls uh, Simon, he calls him Peter, or Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock. Uh, Peter means rock. So that's, that's talking about Peter, and how influential was Peter? Well, if you look at the book of Acts, you look at the first two chapters in the book of Acts, and Peter is all over those first, really it's all over the first 10 chapters or so of the book of Acts, and we see Peter is the the first guy to speak. He is the person there in Jerusalem who proclaims the gospel, and thousands of people respond to his gospel message proclamation, and so you you can imagine that indeed Peter is a very influential person in the church. John, he mentions John. John was one of the closest disciples to Jesus. He's the disciple whom Jesus himself loved, John tells us. (laughs) John, along, so Peter, you see him a lot in the first two chapters, then in chapter 3, John is right there, right beside Peter this entire time, and so John is a, a, a crucial part of this early church, especially the church in Jerusalem. John is going to have a ministry that, that spans decades. He's going to be the last living disciple of Jesus Christ. He is an incredibly influential person, and, and Paul acknowledges that. The ministry that that these apostles have, Paul himself is going to talk about how God used them as the foundation of his church. Jesus is the cornerstone. The message of the prophets and the apostles are the foundation. And so Paul is acknowledging that there are influential people that are in the church, and these apostles in particular are vital for the health of the church. The affirmation we see here, though, of these leaders. So there's influential people. And we also see that the affirmation of these leaders is important. They're influential ones and they can be appealed to in times of, of dispute. And their their opinion carries weight. So Paul kind of says that, but then it's like he wants to make sure that the other side of the issue is heard as well, that this this thing is kept in tension, that yeah, yeah, these guys are super important, but but they're not of ultimate importance. Because he starts talking about these people, but, and what does he say, but? He says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Now, why is he saying that? He's saying, I want to make sure that we put their affirmation in the proper context. God is not one who shows partiality. He wants to make it clear that the influencers, these influential people, don't stand in authority over God himself. God, he says, doesn't show partiality. He says that in Romans chapter 2. God shows no partiality. This past uh, past week, I was able to go down to to Texas and, and see my dad and before I, I left for the airport and, and mom and family down there, and before I left for the airport i I told some people I said it is impossible uh, to miss a flight out of Peoria. I missed my flight out of Peoria and um, as I was talking with the with the uh, agent about um, how we could could um, could reconcile this situation of me missing my flight, I had some suggestions that she did not find all that helpful. And um, she said, look, sir, uh, do you want me to put you on another flight or not? Because I don't even have to. I said, you know what? I'm just going to be quiet now, and you do your thing. And she did. And uh, later the next day, I, I looked at my, my boarding pass, and I, and I would just like to say, I feel like the way that we send people through screening and the way that we put people on planes is very undemocratic. I, I'm, I feel like we show a lot of partiality when it comes to that. I saw that she had put, you know, there's like boarding group one and boarding group two, I heard them announce that the, you know, if you don't have any boarding number at all, you can be part of boarding group seven. And I looked at my boarding pass, and I was boarding group nine, which I think she had just made up, um, which was her right. I want to be clear that she has every right to put me in whatever boarding group she wants. There's no partiality uh, with God, but there is partiality with the airline that I flew. Okay. Whenever, I, whenever I'm whenever i in, in certain situations, uh, people will talk to me about, uh, you know, hey, this is a situation. You're a pastor. What do you think? And, you know, sometimes I'll be in a group and they need to pray. Hey, Daniel, you're a pastor. Why don't you pray? Well, you know, I don't mind doing that. I love doing that. But uh, when it comes to the gospel, um, who cares what I think? Who cares? You know, when we get to heaven, we're not going to all kind of be kind of uh, heading uh, towards whatever, this isn't the real imagery, but imagine that there's a gate we're all walking through, and I don't say, guys, I'll catch you on the other end. I'm going through the pastor's line over here. Oh, thank you, appreciate that. I'll see you guys later. Um, God doesn't care, okay? God doesn't say, okay, here's the gospel for everybody else. Now here's the gospel for a pastor, an elder, a Sunday school teacher. God doesn't care. God shows no partiality. It's not, here's the gospel for the poor people. Here's the gospel for the rich people. God doesn't show partiality. And, and Paul wants to make that abundantly clear. It's not like Peter can say, you know what? Uh, I, I'm going to preach this gospel. And God says, well, you know what? That's not what I wanted you to say. But you're Peter, go ahead. Say what you want to say. That's not how this thing works. The church influencers don't have the right to say whatever gospel they want. And Paul wants to protect the church. The church's authority, this is so important to understand, the church's authority has a scope to it. Boundaries. There's a spiritual boundary of, of authority that the church has. If you're in your workplace and your, your boss came to you and said, hey, I want you to do a, a presentation tomorrow, and you said, well, look, I was working on this thing, and your boss said, well, you know what, I know that thing you're working on is important to you, but, but this takes priority. What do you say? Okay. You know, you, you're the one who gets, that's your right, is, is my manager, my, my boss. You get to decide what my priorities are in, in, this, in this sphere of my life, and so, I, you know, I was doing this, and now I'm going to be doing that, because you have that authority. But imagine your, your boss came to your house that evening and saw you out in your lawn and your, your boss said, you know what? I know you're watering the lawn right now, but I really think painting that fence takes priority. In fact, I think you need to get some paint, start painting that fence, and uh, you know what? After you paint the fence, I, that shed looks a little, you know, rickety. I think that, that's way more important than watering the grass, you know. What, what would you say? He said, get out of the way, I'm watering my grass. You know, who cares what you think about... My, my, that's, that's an improper use of your authority. The church, by God's grace, has been given authority. God has said, look, I want you to speak into one another's lives, I want you to encourage one another, but there is a, there's a limit to the authority that the church has, that the church's authority, our ability to speak into one another's life, isn't absolute. Now, what happens... Two questions here of application. What happens when a church oversteps its authority? What happens... When either church leadership or people in the church begin to overstep the areas in which God has said they have authority. Well, a couple things happen. One, the clarity of the gospel gets muddied. The clarity of the gospel gets muddy, because one of the areas that a church does have the right to speak into is, is in affirming the gospel, and so when, when people come into our church and they say, I'm a believer, and here's what I believe about Jesus Christ, the church has the authority to say, yeah, I, we, we affirm what you're saying about the gospel, that is the gospel, and we do recognize your testimony, that's, that's an important function of the church. But leaders r- recognize it, the church affirms it, that's, that's a proper use of the authority of the church. But as a church begins overstepping that authority that God has given us, say, you know what, we think you need to do this in your your, your life and we think you have to do this and they're, they're not biblical things but we think you need to to not watch this thing and we need to to listen to only this type of music and you need to wear these certain types of when the church begins to overstep its boundaries what happens the gospel gets muddied because the the church is in charge of affirming the gospel now they're affirming all these other things and it's kind of unclear and maybe some of you come to church tradition come from church traditions where this has been the case they say they affirm the gospel and there's all these other expectations that the church has on people and they're overstepping their boundaries. Like, I'm not sure what the gospel is and isn't anymore. It, the lack of the clarity of the gospel takes place when a church oversteps its boundaries. Legalism flourishes when a church oversteps its boundaries. A church can become oppressive. A church can become a place where sin is concealed when a church begins to overstep its boundaries because people are afraid of of being honest about where they are and about what God is doing. So how, another question of application, then how should we respond when a church oversteps her boundaries? Specifically a, a person maybe in, in a leadership capacity, what, what, what do we do? What do we do? Well, if it's a, if it's an issue that's of, of maybe smaller importance, I, I think it begins with, with talking to a person who's overstepping their boundaries in your life. Maybe it's a an elder, or maybe it's a Sunday school teacher, or maybe it's a, a person in a discipleship relationship. You say, you know what? I, I don't, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's a right way to think about that. I think that's not not a proper use of responsibility, authority. Just just this uh, two weeks ago, someone. A good friend, a fellow elder, came to me and said, Look, uh, Daniel, this is kind of how a decision process has been made. And, and uh, you know, I, I think this was not proper. I think we need to th- think about some of these things more. And, and in, a, in a healthy church, those conversations are going to take place. And I say, you know what? Uh, if, if that's what, what you think, we, we do need to talk about this. And we're talking about it uh, soon as elders, thinking through some of these, some of these issues or how's, what's the right way to understand how we make some decisions and things like that. It's good, it's healthy now let's say it's a let's say it's a larger issue and I just want to say this because I think it's important for a church to be very clear on this what if it's a larger issue what if what if a a member in the church or a person in authority in a church maybe it's another church has overstepped their authority in your life or abused their authority what if a Person and authority in a church has even uh, harmed you in a very significant way. Sexual or or physical abuse. What what if one of those types of things has happened to you as a church has perverted its authority? First of all, I I would say my my prayer for you would be that you would have the ability and the opportunity and and the courage, and I pray for the courage, to to go to the right people and, and let that be known because when a when a church leader or a person of influence within a church has harmed a person that is not a situation in which you need to say well um I don't want to cause I don't want to cause shame I don't want to hurt the church I don't want to do anything that would that would uh rock the boat no whenever something like that has taken place God in his great sovereignty would would call you to do the things that are necessary to to expose sin and to expose inappropriate uses of or abuses of people in authority. And, you know, for God forbid it would ever be the situation at Bethany Community where something serious like that would take place, but if it does, you need to know that there are voices that will hear you. This is not, by the way, this is not a Matthew 18 principle Let's say a person has, has abused you and harmed you. You say, well, I have to go to them first. No, no, no. This is a, it's a First Timothy issue. A leader, a person in position of authority has harmed you. You need to protect yourself. You need to go to another elder. You need to go to another person of influence and authority in the church and seek their, their help. They're there to help you. All of our elders, for example, at Bethany are on the website, and you can go to any of them and and uh, and love to to talk about uh, protecting you. The The government exists for your uh, protection, and if someone has harmed you in a church, perhaps someone's harmed you in another church, the, the government there exists to protect you because that is not a proper use of church authority. But it's on smaller issues too, right? A church's authority has limits. And it can be abused. And and you need to know, if if a church is abusing its its authority, that is contrary to the gospel message. That is not a a proper use of authority. And so Paul begins, look. He says, look, uh, from those who are influential, what they were makes no, no difference to me. God shows no partiality. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're a leader. It doesn't matter if you are an apostle. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher. It doesn't matter if you're whatever. When it comes to the gospel, God doesn't show partiality. Here's the second principle. Number two. God not the church, determines the content of the gospel message. So he says, those who were influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, I think this is the, the main point of this section. The main point is the church didn't overstep her bounds. The church didn't begin to mess with the gospel. Now, remember that that condemnation in chapter 1 where he says, you know, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so I say again, if, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So the gospel message that you received from us was from God. You responded to it. Now, if, if we or anybody else says anything different, reject them. Let, let that person be accursed, because who gets to determine the gospel? Not the person who gave it but God himself. God, not the church, determines the content of the gospel message. That's what we're we're doing as apostles, as as messengers. That's, That's the second thing. Here's the third thing, number three. God, not the church, empowers ministry. So it's God, it's not the church, who empowers ministry. What does Paul go on to say? Look at what he says in verses seven through eight. He's talking about those who were influential, and then he says, "On the contrary." So this is the the, the influential people. They didn't add anything to what I was saying in the gospel. They didn't say, "You know what? Uh, these these Judaizers are right. Maybe we should do this circumcision thing and make them become Jewish." He says, "No. On the contrary, when they saw, and we'll talk more in a moment about what the church did, but." but let's talk about from the perspective of God, what, what they saw God doing. When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, again, parenthetical thought, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that these influencers didn't add anything to his gospel message. Instead, they noticed something. They noticed that God was at work. They noticed that this same ministry that God had been working through Peter for the Gentiles was now being worked through Paul. I'm sorry, Peter to the circumcised, to the Jews, was now being worked through Paul to the Gentiles. In fact, Turn to 1 Corinthians 12, if if you would, if if you'd like to, for a moment. Let me just read a couple verses from 1 Corinthians 12 about God's empowering for ministry. The apostles notice that God has, has done something here. God did something in Peter. God did something in Paul. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, says this, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of, of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So what, what does God do? It's, it's God who distributes ministry, and he doesn't just distribute one ministry to everybody. He, he doesn't just distribute ministries to some people. He gives a variety of gifts to a variety of people, to all people. And he's the one who empowers them. So God's the one who who gives the the grace to do the ministry. Verse 7, to each, so if if you are a believer, if you're a a part of God's body, you have been given this. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's, There's the purpose. You have these gifts for the purpose of the church, for one another, for the future members of the church, for the current members of the church. that decides what the ministry is going to be. It's it's God. God determines what the ministry is is going to be. God determines what he's going to have his children to do. This is all God's empowering, all God's decision. Several years ago, I was speaking fairly frequently at different adoption conferences, and there was was kind of a common refrain. I'd, I'd come to this adoption conference, and people from different churches would come, and there was a there was kind of this underlying frustration with, with their churches that they were coming from. And they would say things like, you know, Daniel, um, uh, thank goodness your church is so—these are their words— your church is so blessed to have you—I don't know, stop—I um, hear it all the time—no— um, my pastor, my pastor doesn't get it. My pastor doesn't get how important adoption ministry is. Um, I think he hates children, in fact, or something like that. And they, and, and I, and uh, then they would say, perhaps. Then, um, then I, then I talk to, to pastors at these, and they say, "You, Daniel, um, these people are crazy. Like they're so intense on this one ministry, and, and they're, they're, it's like no other ministries in the church exist." Now, here's here's the issue, right? The issue is that sometimes churches do fail to see how God is at work, right? And people, as they get frustrated with their church, instead of saying, okay, this is my family, this is where God has called me to do ministry, they, they pull back, they pull out. And I talked to many people at adoption conferences who said, you know what, it's too hard to work with my elders or my deacons, it's too hard to get things approved on their church budget. I have just pulled out of my church, and I am doing my own ministry now, and it is going great because I don't have all this this red tape and this bureaucracy. How should we think about this? A couple applications. One, the church needs to be really careful about pushing people to do things they aren't called by God to do. Our whole life is ministry, not just some church programs. Our whole life is ministry, and we need to be very careful about how we as a church, how we as we talk to other people, encourage them to be doing things in ministry in their home life, and, and especially in, in their church life. We need to think about how we, we don't want to guilt people into ministry. What we want to be able to do as we motivate people is to say, look, this is, this is how God is working in your life. He calls you to love the church. Here's your church. Here are their needs. How is God going to use you to care for others? And I think people, as they are encouraged to use their gifts, need to to realize, look, my my gifts were designed for the context of the local church. Not everyone's job is going to be the same. I want my my focus to be fulfilling on God's purpose for his body and how I I can serve and how I can meet it. I encourage you to keep on reading 1 Corinthians 12 as he talks about the variety of gifts that are given. And then he comes to verse 26. He says, "If, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together, now you are the body of Christ, individually members of it. Number four, the church should recognize God's gift of ministry. He says this in verse 9, so so we've talked about what God does, God empowers these ministries, God gives these gifts, and then in verse 9 he says, and when... James and Cephas and John, who seem to be pillars, in this is he they perceive. Remember verse 8 it says they saw. Verse 9, it says perceive, that's that's recognized, realized, have this intellectual comprehension of the grace that was given to me. Now, what does that take? It takes a right theology of understanding how gifts are given. So the leaders recognize the truth that we've just said. They recognize it's God who gives and empowers ministries. And now the leaders say, okay, um, we want to be on the lookout for God's grace. Paul, as he talks about his ministry over and over again, refers to it as, as grace, according to the grace of God given to me, 1 Corinthians 3.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, 1 Corinthians 15.10. Romans one 5 we we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Romans 15.15, on uh, some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. The person who rightly has a theology of gift giving says, okay, God gives gifts of grace, of ministry to his church, and a church says, okay... Our our job and our relationships with one another as we think about ministry and encouraging one another in the life of ministry, our our job is to be on the lookout for God's gifts of grace. I want to see how God is, is working in my brothers and sisters in Christ, and as I see God working in their life, I want to be on the lookout for God's grace being manifested in their life. How did they do that? There was an awareness of what God desires. They they perceived. There was an awareness of fruitful ministry. So they, they were on the lookout for this this ministry, and they, they, they saw Paul's life, and they said, well, surely God is at work here. Now, sometimes we have this view of Paul. We say, okay, Paul was was on the road to Damascus, and then, boom, he becomes this amazing apostle. And And for sure, there's an immediate gifting of the Spirit in his life. But you know how long it's been since his conversion until this... This moment in Galatians 2, how long? Yeah, 14 years. It requires humility on the part of the person who has been given these gifts to to bring along others to to see them. And then it also, and and this is kind of the main thing I think we need to think about as a church and in one another's lives, it requires humility to recognize that our plans aren't always God's plans. Especially for those who are in in charge of ministries in the church, for 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 elders and for pastors, for for teaching pastors who have this this amazing vision of perhaps this ministry, say, so, you know what, God's plan for this church may be different than than what I thought. For sure, for these these Jerusalem leaders, Paul's ministry was not on their radar. Part. It was not what they were thinking about in terms of ministry, and yet God works in Paul's life and the leaders perceive it and they have the humility and the wisdom and the God-glorifying perspective to say, okay, God has equipped Paul and Barnabas in this way and we're going to get behind it. Why? Because the church doesn't dictate ministry, the church discerns it. Fifth principle, the church should support God's gift of ministry. It says, next part of verse 9, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. What does that mean? It it doesn't just mean they they shook hands and said, fine, we'll agree and we won't argue. No, it indicates deep fellowship, unity, agreement, purpose. The church, we've talked about this in previous weeks, supports God's gift of ministry. Last principle, the church should coordinate God's gifts of ministry. Where does the church's authority go to? What does the church, what do we collectively have the ability to do? Well, we should have the ability and the wisdom to coordinate the the gifts of God's ministry that he's given us. He says that They gave the right hand of fellowship, this this partnership that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. They they divide up the responsibilities. There's, There's agreement to work together for the common good. They mention something to Paul that he hasn't mentioned yet, caring for the poor, and, and Paul says, yeah, I'm, I'm eager to do that. And we see here this, this beautiful relationship that exists between the called and, and the church collectively. The, the, the church recognizes God's grace, and there's a, a level of coordination. There's, there's submission to a, to a body of people and saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to submit to this relationship and, and do things in accordance with your direction for the glory of God. And so often we waste so many resources so many resources through lack of coordination, through lack of humility. All of us should have this desire to glorify God and serve one another. And as the church sees people engaged in ministry and recognizes God's gifts of, of grace and ministry in their life, the church affirms that, they affirm the person, they help encourage the person to develop and in, in and uh, grow in those ministries. It's hard. It's a hard process. It, it's so much easier to be separate and living our own lives. It's so much easier as a church to be an overbearing parent, right? It's, okay. This is what you need to do, and this is what you need to do. Here are the things we're going to Here's where you're going to fit. But it's so much more biblical to say, look, this is God's deal. And we believe that there are things that God has called us to do. We believe that there are, there are ministries that we're doing right now that we believe are, are in accordance with the things that God would desire us to do. And so here the, here's kind of our ministry plan. And yet, as God brings people and, and equips them, our job is not to say, this is what you must do in this ministry and church, or this is what you must do in this area of your life. But instead to say, look, God has given you this, this gift of grace, and we we want to encourage, we want to equip you, we want to be a part of God's life in you. You see, again, as a church responds to people, as we as a whole call one another to ministry, we can do so in a way that affirms the gospel of freedom. It says God is a God of freedom that works in our life, that causes us to walk in obedience to Him and joy, or we can in our relationships with one another, undermine that gift of of freedom as we extend past the appropriate bounds of where God has has placed us. The responsibility of the church is not to dictate, but to discern God's gifts of ministry given to Christ's church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in him, for your glory. We pray that By your grace, you would allow us to rightly understand you and to rightly encourage one another to to live lives that that bring glory to you as we serve one another on the basis of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Our faith is in him and him alone, and we pray this in his name. Amen.